Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. And we talk a lot about Roth conversions and Roth conversion strategies and how it can help you to impact or how it can help you to lower the impact of your lifetime tax bill, especially throughout retirement. Now, when I first started doing this and doing it more often with clients, my expectation was most of them would view it as a way to reduce their lifetime tax bill. That's kind of the first benefit. And that is the way most people view it. But what I quickly started to find was some people, they viewed it, yes, as how can I reduce my lifetime tax benefit or my lifetime tax bill? But a very close second in terms of benefits for them was how will this potentially help to make the inheritance I want to leave to my children even more beneficial? How will this not just impact me and my retirement, but how will this also benefit my children when they inherit this in the future? So that's the topic that we're going to be exploring today. And really, this came up through a listener question. And this question is from Kurt. Kurt says this. He says, hi, James, I subscribe to your YouTube channel, and I find your information very understandable and useful as I work my way through the retirement jungle. I have listened to several of your podcasts regarding Roth conversions, and I think I have a good understanding of the basic tax implications and whether it would be beneficial for my retirement plan or not. However, I'm also thinking about the tax implications for my son when he inherits. For my question, I don't think you need to know my specific retirement info. You can make up appropriate examples if you deem this topic to be worthy. The question, perhaps, I'll find that a Roth conversion is a wash or I might even lose some money via taxes by doing the conversion. However, as I mentioned before, part of what I look at long term is a tax situation that I pass on to my son in his inheritance. Is a Roth substantially more advantageous than a tax-deferred IRA in an inheritance situation? I am 57 years old. If I do conversions now and there's a tax advantage in the inheritance, then there could be substantial tax-free earnings that I pass on to my son. Finally, I'm working toward establishing a trust, and if having a trust has an effect on the situation, I would appreciate that being addressed as well. I greatly appreciate your podcasts and videos. They have helped me make many decisions that would otherwise be very difficult. Perhaps you could provide your outstanding clarity to the inheritance implications of Roth versus tax-deferred IRAs. Thank you for your consideration. Kurt. Well, Kurt, thank you very much for that question. And I think we can certainly explore this. Now, usually in these episodes, I try to put a lot of work into outlining this and thinking through this and thinking through every last possibility so that it can be as specific as possible. I try to create a framework or at least rules to follow, depending on your situation, knowing that everyone is different. As I think about this specific question, though, it's easy to give specific advice to one person, but as I'm trying to give specific advice to a general audience here, knowing that everyone's in different situations, it becomes a little bit more challenging because there are so many more variables that make this type of a concept a little bit more difficult. And what I do like about this question is it's kind of the universal sense or the sense in planning of, I'll mention this before, but we tend to look at things in a vacuum of here's my inheritance strategy and my tax strategy and my investment strategy and my social security strategy and my income strategy. We look at them one by one, but the reality is there's a ton of overlap. And the things that you do or the decisions you make with regard to one of those strategies certainly has implications with the others. And we can see that very clearly here. What Kurt is asking here is not just what's the best thing for my tax strategy, but how does that then impact my inheritance and my strategy around that? 
So that's what I do like about it. But because of that, there's so many more variables that are introduced and so many more nuances that are introduced that what I'm going to do today is I'm going to share my thoughts. But due to the nature of the question and the number of variables involved, some of what we talk about will be more general and less rules-based than I typically like to be. So love the question, absolutely have thoughts, just wanted to preface this all saying there may not be a clear-cut black and white answer. All right, now real quick before we jump into the content of today's episode, I want to highlight the review of the week because I always want to take a moment to appreciate whenever you leave a review. And it can be as simple as just hitting five stars on your Spotify app or on your Apple podcast app. Or for those of you that take the time to actually write out reviews, really means a lot to me and want to say thank you and want to say thank you by helping or by highlighting some of those reviews. So the most recent review, this is a five-star review from username mom of three teenage girls. And the title says great podcast. And it goes on to say, I've been searching for information as I'm approaching retirement in my forties as a first responder. James has a way of explaining various topics in a way that is easy to understand. And that also builds confidence in my situation. I follow all the YouTube videos as well and have passed this podcast on to many of my coworkers. As he says, the sign of a successful investment portfolio is a life well lived. Thank you, James. All right. Well, thank you for that review means a ton. If you want a way to support the podcast, a great way to do so is leaving a review. Another great way to do so and a free way to do so is through subscribing to the YouTube page where we have this content as well as more content. And we have more content on the YouTube channel planned in the future as well. Okay, so let's now get back to the question. And the question being, how do my inheritance goals tie into my decision to implement a Roth conversion strategy or not to implement a Roth conversion strategy. So there's a few key areas I want to talk about. And number one is first and foremost, understand your priorities. So I know that this question, this is specifically coming from Kurt, and Kurt has made it very clear that a priority is the inheritance he wants to leave to his son. Now, right off the bat, not everyone's going to have the same priorities. Some people, my conversation with them, they say, my goal is to spend all my money and have my last check bounce. Great. You want to live a long, healthy retirement and have it be very meaningful and full of amazing things, but legacy isn't much of a priority. Totally fine. For other people, family is the main priority, either legacy in terms of what they leave when they pass or the ability to gift and support family along the way. Everyone is different. And so this is why before anyone or before I give specific recommendations to anyone, there's a long conversation about what's most important. That can be your lifestyle, that can be giving, that can be family and legacy and what you want to do there. Everyone is different. So have an understanding before you actually talk about the financial strategies, before you actually dive into what specific tools or tactics makes most sense for you, understand your priorities. What do you want to be able to do? What's the most important aspect of your financial strategy? And then you can start to work through what makes most sense. So what we're going to be talking about today, this is going to make most sense If leaving money to children, or I guess I should just say leaving money to heirs, is really important to you. If it's not, that's perfectly fine. And let me save you 20, 30 minutes. This podcast is probably not going to be super relevant for you. Go listen to one of the other 100 plus episodes that maybe is more applicable to what you're looking to do. But this is specifically how do you look at your Roth conversion or tax strategy, both in the context of your plan, as well as how it might impact your children. So that's number one. I just want to get that out of the way of if this isn't important, that's perfectly fine. But understanding your specific priorities is the first most important piece in building out a successful plan for yourself. Number two, I want to quickly go over how inherited IRAs and how inherited Roth IRAs work, especially because there's been some changes to this in recent years. 
and because this is going to help to illustrate how tax planning is going to impact both you and your heirs. So let's look at this. Well, when you turn age 72, you have something called a required minimum distribution. Any money that you have in a pre-tax account, you're going to have to start taking money out of that account, and it's a specific minimum amount each year. You can always take more, but you cannot take less without paying a penalty. That happens when you turn 72. Now, there used to be a rule before 2020 that if you inherited an IRA or a Roth IRA, you also had to start taking required minimum distributions from that account the year after inheriting it. So even if you're younger than 72, that same general framework, that same general approach of being required to take a minimum amount each year, that also applied. Well, on January 1st of 2020, a new law went into effect that says there's no more required distributions in the same sense or in the same way that there used to be before 2020. Instead, if you inherit an IRA or if you inherit a Roth IRA on January 1st of 2020 or beyond, there's something called a 10-year rule instead. Now, under the 10-year rule, you don't have to take out any specific amount in any given year, but you have until December 31st of the 10th anniversary of the account owner's death to fully distribute the account, meaning you can take out an even amount for all 10 years, or you could take out all the 10th year and nothing for the first nine years. It doesn't really matter. What the IRS is telling you, though, is you must have fully distributed that entire account. There are some exceptions to this, and the exceptions are if you're a surviving spouse or if you're a disabled or chronically ill person, if you're a child who hasn't reached the age of majority, or if you're a person who's not more than 10 years younger than the account owner. In other words, you're fewer than 10 years younger than the IRA account owner who passed away. If that's the case, you can actually still use the standard required minimum distribution rules. And if you're actually a surviving spouse, you just make the IRA or the Roth IRA your own when you inherit it. There's no required distributions unless you're 72 or older. So those are some exceptions, but in general, those are the new rules. So there's a 10-year rule that you have to fully distribute the account. This applies to both traditional IRAs and to Roth IRAs. Some people are surprised by that. They say, well, what the heck? I thought the Roth IRAs had no required minimum distributions. That is correct if it's your Roth IRA, but if your child or if an heir or if a beneficiary is inheriting the Roth IRA, they still have required distributions, or I should say they still have to follow the 10-year rule, which isn't technically a required minimum distribution each year, but it's fully distributing the account within those 10 years. So in general, and everybody's strategy is different and everyone's situation is different, so this does not hold true always, but in general, usually I'll see people who spread out the inherit. If, if they inherit an IRA, it makes sense for them to spread out the distributions from that. Say they inherit an IRA that's $500,000. Well, if they pull the full amount out right away, that's excess income of $500,000 in that year, which puts them probably into a much higher tax bracket than they were currently in. Versus if they took out 50, 60, 70 grand per year, what that's doing is in most cases, keeping them in a lower tax bracket than if they had pulled the entire amount out in year one. So usually if it's an inherited IRA, what people do is spread out the distributions. And if there's any year where they have a lower income, well, that's a great year to maybe take more out of the inherited IRA because they're starting at a lower point, meaning they can take more out before getting into the higher tax brackets. With inherited Roth IRAs, though, 
In many cases, it makes sense to leave that alone for as long as possible. You will have to fully distribute it within the first 10 years, but can you push that all the way to the end of the last 10th year? Because as that money stays in the inherited Roth IRA, it keeps growing tax-free. So it keeps growing, 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 growing tax-free. So ideally, the longer you can keep it in there, the more you can take advantage of those benefits. When you pull it out, you still have to take it out in those 10 years, but it's not going to be taxable. So if we use that example again of inheriting a $500,000 IRA, but this time it's an inherited Roth IRA, well, unlike the traditional IRA that we probably wanted to spread out over time for tax reasons, we might want to keep that in the inherited Roth IRA, depending on your situation, of course, and what you may need the money for. But we may want to keep that money in the inherited Roth IRA because it keeps growing tax-free. And if that 500000 say, turns to 600 then 700 then 800 then a million dollars over those 10 years, well, you can then take out that full million dollars tax-free in that final year once you've used up all the tax-free growth, and then you can do with it what you need. So that's just a quick note. That's typically how I see people use these. Obviously, it's going to be a case-by-case basis, but that is how inherited IRAs and Roth IRAs now work from January 1st of 2020 and beyond. Those are the new rules. All right, then the next thing that we need to do is we need to understand the legacy impact of different assets. And that's a little bit of confusing. What do I mean by that? Well, at surface level, this analysis isn't too different than the Roth conversion analysis you might do for yourself. And if you've heard any of the episodes where I talk about how does Roth conversion make sense or Roth conversion strategy, and really what it comes down to is can you convert money from your traditional accounts into your Roth accounts in years where your taxable income is super low so that you're not paying taxes on required distributions from your traditional accounts when you are starting to take required minimum distributions. So it's kind of like tax arbitrage of can you shift money into after-tax accounts when your income is low so you're not paying taxes at such a high rate when you are being forced to take RMDs. So in a sense, that analysis is also going to be the same here. It comes down to if you converted your assets today from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, is it going to be at a tax rate that is higher or lower than what your son's tax rate would be, going back to Kurt's question, when he would ultimately inherit these assets? So for example, if we say, Kurt, just hypothetically, what if you're an incredibly low tax bracket? Well, could you convert assets from your traditional IRA to your Roth IRA at 12%? Well, if you could do that and your son is earning a huge income and say he's living in California and he's in the top tax bracket at the state level and at the federal level, if he inherited the IRA, he would be paying taxes at a 50% tax rate on anything that he had to pull out of there if he was in the top federal and state tax brackets in a high tax state like California. So in that case, yes, it absolutely makes sense. If you are trying to optimize for your inheritance, not necessarily just for yourself, but if you're trying to optimize for inheritance assets, it would make sense to do Roth conversions as much as you possibly can. So the analysis is not too different than what it would be when you're looking at your tax bracket today versus your tax bracket at age 72 and beyond when RMDs come into play. Now, practically speaking, the analysis gets kind of weird because you kind of have to assume a time that you'll die. You'll have to assume an income for your son. You'll have to assume a tax rate for your son at some point in the future. So you can start to see there's just going to be more and more variables that you're introducing as you start to extend this analysis just from you and what your tax bracket is today versus what it is in the future to extend it to a much later time in the future, hopefully a much later time in the future when your son would actually inherit these assets. So 
at surface level, you can see it's not too different of an analysis. Here's the biggest thing that's different though, to me at least, as I'm looking at this and thinking through what possibly changes here, is it's how you plan for your brokerage assets or your non-retirement assets. So when we do a Roth conversion analysis, say for an individual, we to some extent assume the same tax treatment of brokerage assets today versus in the future. Now, obviously there's going to be some fluctuation there just based upon what your taxable income is and yada yada, but we know that there's going to be capital gains taxes on long-term capital gains and qualified dividends. We know there's going to be ordinary income taxes on interest and non-qualified dividends. And whether you pay that money today or in the future doesn't make too much of a difference. Whether that's today, five years from today, 20 years from today, we're kind of assuming all else is going to be equal. But when we are looking at inheritances, this is no longer equal. Because if you have, say, highly appreciated stocks, or you have investments that you bought a long time ago, and the cost basis is much lower than it is today, for you to sell those, we're going to treat that the same as whether you sell that today or in five years or 10 years, because there's still going to be a gain on that, we're assuming. But when we look at how this impacts your inheritance, if your son were to inherit those assets, all of a sudden there's a step up in basis. So all of a sudden, say you bought a stock for $10,000 20 years ago, and now it's worth $200,000. Well, whether you sell that today or tomorrow or the next day, you're probably going to be paying a pretty hefty tax because it's a pretty hefty gain. But if you keep that asset until you pass, assuming tax law and estate law is still the same, there's going to be a step up in basis, which means the cost basis becomes the value of the asset on the day that you passed, and it becomes a much greater asset, a much greater benefit to your son or to your heirs than it even would be to you. So unlike doing a Roth conversion analysis that's just focused on your retirement income and what's best for you in terms of overall taxes saved, because in that analysis, oftentimes you are living on your brokerage assets and you are using those, you're burning through those in a sense to shift money from pre-tax IRAs to after-tax Roth IRAs. When you're now looking at inheritance and how this impacts future generations, you have to look at those brokerage assets differently. Those brokerage assets almost become like Roth IRAs in the sense that whatever is inherited is completely tax-free on the date that it's inherited, just like a Roth IRA would be. So to me, that's one of the bigger changes. It changes even things like your home. For you, your home might not be a factor in your retirement plan. It probably isn't for most people. It might not be a factor in your tax plan at all. Well, for your son, Kurt, or for anyone else's heirs who's listening to this, it will certainly be a factor. A lot of times that's the biggest asset or the largest asset that people leave to their children. Now, there's not a whole lot you can do to enhance the value of that or to do any tax planning around that. Your home is just your home and the value is going to increase or decrease based upon what the market does. But that's going to be another factor that we now take into account as we're looking at kind of intergenerational tax planning as opposed just to your own particular tax planning. Another way in which it changes is a lot of people when they're implementing a Roth conversion strategy, they're doing it because they want to avoid pretty significant RMDs in the future. Well, in a sense, and this is where this is a very general thought, this isn't really rules-based or specific, but in a sense, even if you do have high RMDs, if your goal is more legacy for children, that's not necessarily the worst thing because you just take that RMD, you pay the taxes, and you reinvest it into a brokerage account. In that brokerage account, again, assuming the same rules and assuming there's still step up in basis, whatever that account grows to, that is now passed on tax-free to your child. 
So these are just some basic thoughts on this in general. It's going to be a very similar analysis to looking at your tax situation when you're determining if a Roth conversion makes sense or not. But there's just so much more that can change. And and this doesn't even stop there. This comes down to what else could change. Well, what state do you live in today versus what state might you live in in the future? And what state does your child live in today? And what state does your child live in in the future? Because there's probably going to be different state income taxes that you have to factor in here. To an extent, estate taxes at the federal or state level also could potentially tie into this. I'm not going to get too detailed into that because it is more nuanced and granular here, but that could impact this. So there's just so many of these variables that could change it, but want to just provide somewhat of a framework of what other types of assets or what other types of points do you need to consider when looking at it this way. Kurt then goes on to say in another part of his question, he says, Finally, I am working toward establishing a trust, and if having a trust has an effect on the situation, I would appreciate that being addressed as well. Now, I have no idea the size of Kurt's estate. I don't know much about his financial situation other than the fact that he has a son, and it's looking like he wants to see how do I maximize the effectiveness of the inheritance I leave to my son. Now, overall, trust is a good idea. It may or may not have an impact on the value of assets left via Roth IRAs, traditional IRAs, etc. More than likely, it won't have an impact on that at all, unless a few things. Now, this, I want to say this with a grain of salt here, very rarely does this actually make sense. But if you have very high IRA assets, and more importantly, if your heir will be in a very high income tax bracket, you could use more of an advanced planning technique where what you do, and this kind of ties into the trust aspect, this isn't a family trust, but you could establish something called a charitable remainder unit trust. You might hear it called a CRUT, C-R-U-T, CRUT for short. Now, what you do is, or let me explain how a charitable remainder unit trust works. What happens is you give a gift to the CRUT, and what happens is that CRUT then pays an income amount to an income beneficiary for as long as that income beneficiary is alive. And when that income beneficiary is no longer alive, the remaining amount passes to a charity. So what does that have to do with an inheritance? We're not talking about leaving money to a charity. We're talking about how do we leave more money to children's? Well, here's where this comes into play. And again, it doesn't come into play a whole lot, but in some special, unique circumstances, it could, where if you name, instead of naming your child as the beneficiary of your IRA, what you would do is you would name the CRUT as the beneficiary of your IRA, and you would name your son as the beneficiary or the income beneficiary of the CRUT. So what that does is... Let's just walk through it. You pass away. You have a significant amount, for example, in your traditional IRA. Let's assume a very large amount for time being. Let's assume you have $5 million in your IRA. Well, if that IRA continues to get 8% growth and your son has to take that fully out over the course of the next 10 years, he would have to take out $745,000 per year, assuming an 8% growth rate, to fully deplete that IRA over the course of the next 10 years. Now assume your son lives in California and he's in the top income tax bracket. Well, his federal bracket's 37%. His state bracket's over 13%. He's paying over 50% total in taxes. So there's $745,000 that's being left, but because he's receiving that at the highest possible income tax bracket, he's still keeping a very significant amount, a substantial amount, but over half of it is going to taxes. The reason for that is he's forced to take all that money out over a condensed time period, over those 10 years, as opposed to being able to stretch that out over time. Well, hypothetically, if instead a charitable remainder unit trust, if the CRUT was left as the beneficiary 
of Kurt's IRA. Again, I'm assuming Kurt has a very large IRA just to illustrate the use case for this here. What happens is the Kurt receives this and there's no tax implications for the Kurt to receive the full $5 million IRA as a beneficiary when Kurt passes. And then what happens is Kurt's son is the income beneficiary. So every single year for as long as his son is alive, he's going to receive a distribution from the Kurt. So over the first 10 years, he would have certainly made a whole lot more money if he was just the direct beneficiary of the IRA because he fully redeemed it over those full 10 years and he received more upfront. But he was forced to do so at a very high tax bracket. If instead he received a smaller amount, but over a much longer time period from the credit, it's allowing him in a way, in some ways, to stretch out the ability to take that income over many years instead of having to take it over a condensed time period when he's in potentially the most high or the highest possible tax bracket. Obviously, I'm making up details here along the way to see what's the perfect situation for this. A lot of times this does not make sense, especially because to create a credit, there's costs involved. There's a separate tax return you have to file each year. So you really only want to do it if the savings are substantial. But what this does is what if now Kurt's son can possibly receive income for 30, 40, 50 years from the credit as opposed to just 10 years and fully distributing all those assets at a super high tax bracket and being left with about 50 cents on the dollar of what he would have otherwise received had he not been in such a high tax bracket. So there's relatively few instances in when this actually works, but if you're going to do so, it's kind of one of those things where you want to make sure your beneficiary is not too old, but also not so young that the CRUT doesn't work because there's actuarial calculations it's based upon. And in general, your beneficiary has to be probably at least mid-20s or so or older. Otherwise, the math just doesn't work in terms of how the trust is created. You also want to make sure your beneficiary is not too old because say you're, you know, going back to Kurt as an example, say Kurt leaves this to his son or he leaves his IRA to the CRUT when his son is 70 years old because Kurt has a great long life expectancy and leaves it to his son when his son is 70. Well, his son probably doesn't have enough life left at that point to be able to make the smaller distributions make sense and overcome what otherwise would have happened if he could have just pulled the money out over 10 years had he been a direct beneficiary of the IRA instead. So you don't want to be too old, but you also don't want to be too young. And when I say you, I'm talking about the beneficiary of this in order for this to work. You also want to make sure that your beneficiary is going to be in a high tax bracket. If they're not going to be in a high tax bracket, this probably doesn't make a lot of sense. You probably just use the direct naming as a beneficiary for this to make more sense. And you need to expect there's going to be some significant long-term returns inside of this credit. So we need to keep this money growing in order to pay those distributions, enough to pay the charity at the end and the income distributions along the way. And then ideally, you're also charitably inclined because there is a case where you could potentially end up receiving a whole lot less in this strategy than you could just being a direct named beneficiary. And then the full proceeds just go to the charity, which again, isn't horrible if you're charitably inclined, but if that's not your goal, then you have to understand some of the risks with this. So I am doing a very high level overview of how this works. I fully recognize that some of this might be a little bit confusing. But if you have a substantial IRA, if your heir is in a very high income tax bracket, if you have concerns of what this might look like, that is when setting up a CRUT might make sense in order to maximize the after-tax value of what your heir would receive from your IRA as it pertains to kind of intergenerational tax planning. So I'll leave it at that there. If anyone has specific questions on that, reach out to me. I don't want to waste too much time going into all the bells and whistles of that.
So I hope that was helpful. I know, as I said, there's not specific rules here. There's not a specific, well, if this is your case, then do that. If that's your case, then do this. It's more of just an understanding of the landscape that you're working in here that I wanted to make sure we had a chance to go over in today's episode. So I hope this was helpful. Kurt, thank you for your question. Thank you to everyone who is listening. If you have a question, feel free to submit it through the Ready for Retirement webpage at readyforretirement.co. Leave a review if you haven't left a review already and make sure that you've checked us out on YouTube under Root Financial Partners. That's the channel name. Subscribe there, consume content there, and I will see you all next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.